Welcome everyone to Amarillo Reform Fellowship, ARF, 2019 Spring Conference. ARF is a ministerial alliance where Reformed pastors in this area, in this community, in the Panhandle, especially Amarillo, gather together for prayer, for fellowship, and for mutual support. And we also enjoy getting our churches involved with hosting one or two conferences a year that we might grow in our knowledge of the Reformed faith. Now our conference title this weekend is Worship in Spirit and Truth. God created us to be worshipers. And so then it is no surprise that the Bible tells us a great deal about worshiping our God. And it is for this reason that I am extremely excited for this conference. See, worship is very important for the church to understand. And it is something that is very important for Amarillo Reform Fellowship. In fact, this is evidenced by the fact that we host a joint service where we worship together once a month in the Sunday evening uh, worship time. And so uh, we, we desire greatly to worship our triune God and to do it as He has prescribed. And so worship is very important to ARF. Therefore, I'm, I'm extremely excited about our conference this weekend. I have a couple of quick housekeeping notes for us this evening. First, we have printed schedules uh, for the weekend just outside those double doors and to your right, if you walk out and to the right. If you don't have one of these schedules, uh, you're more than welcome to pick one up, keep it on you throughout the weekend. You can take it with you so that you can know uh, what the schedule will be like over the next few days. Also, we have water, coffee, and snacks uh, just back here, and uh, you are more than welcome to them. We also uh, have uh, our restrooms are uh, just outside the double doors, down the hallway to the right. And also, uh, we want to uh, point out that there are baskets in the back side or the back of this room on either side of those double doors. Uh, you'll see there, those baskets are for you if you are. If you so desire to give to ARF, if you enjoy the conferences that we put on uh, for ARF and would like to give towards that, uh, you can place any donations or giving there in those baskets. Uh, these conferences don't happen without you, and so we ask that uh, the Lord uh, so leads uh, that you would uh, give towards our ARF conferences. 100% of your giving goes to the, the future conferences that we put on. Now, the last note that I want to give you before introducing our speaker is to please silence your phones, your cell phones, so that we can limit any distractions during our conference. Now then, <clears throat> I would like to introduce to you the Reverend Glenn Clary. He is an ordained minister in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church where he pastors in my presbytery, in, in uh, our presbytery here from Christ Covenant, at Providence OPC in Pflugerville, Texas. That's near Austin, 
Texas. And Glenn holds a bachelor's degree from Southwestern Christian University in Bethany, Oklahoma, a Master of Divinity degree from Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and a Doctor of Ministry degree from Erskine Theological Seminary. In fact, Glenn and I flew to Amarillo this morning. I've been at a, a different conference all week long. Um, Glenn was there as well, and we flew here together this morning. He was telling me his desire to go to Erskine Theological Seminary was because he wanted to study under Hughes Oliphant Old, who has written much and taught much on the topic of Reformed worship. And Glenn read his book in seminary and wanted to study under him. He was teaching at Erskine, and so he went there and trained under him. And <clears throat> he did his dissertation on uh, the Eucharist and the Didache, uh, very, very much along the lines of, of worship and how we are to worship. And he also teaches at the Ministerial Training Institute of the OPC, he teaches on Reformed worship uh, for us in that. He also speaks at many conferences, not the least of which the Reformed Forum Conference annually, but he goes all over the place and speaks uh, on many topics, but uh, he certainly excels on talking about Reformed worship. And so he is certainly equipped to teach us this weekend about the worship of our triune God. And so uh, I will ask Glenn if you will please come forward and uh, open us with a word of prayer and uh, lead us in the teaching of God's word. Good evening, friends. Greetings in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's good to see you. It's good to be here with you. I've gotten to meet some of you and hope to meet the rest of you before our conference is over. And I hope to be able to remember your names. There's a lot of people here to remember. I'm glad to be here. I'm very excited about the topic, uh, about the study of worship. I've been studying worship for a very long time. And uh, I'm very passionate about it. I hope you are too. It's what we are called to do, to worship the Lord our God. And since this is a conference on worship, why don't we begin with reading a passage of Scripture about worship. And I'd like to read Psalm uh, 24, Psalm 24, and maybe we can sing the Gloria Patri after reading Psalm 24. Would that be okay? Okay. Uh, we can do it, I think, a cappella, without accompaniment, unless somebody wants to, wants to play. Uh, however, uh, you'll have to mute my microphone, or we will <laughs> empty the building rather quickly. <laughs> While we sing, that is. So let me read Psalm 24, and then we can sing together, and I'll lead us in prayer. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord, and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. 
Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Okay, let's sing together. Okay, let's join our hearts together in prayer. We praise you, O Lord our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, for you are good and your mercy endures forever and your faithfulness to all generations. You, O Lord, are the King of glory, enthroned in the highest of heavens. We praise you, O God, for sending your Son, Jesus Christ, to redeem us and reconcile us to yourself so that through him, through the new and living way that he has opened for us through his own death on the cross, we may enter into your glory presence and worship you in spirit and in truth. Father, we pray that you would bless us as we study the Holy Scriptures together, that you would instruct us from your word how we are to worship you. And Father, we pray that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit, that we may delight in the study of your word, in the face-to-face -face communion and fellowship that we will have with you in glory when Christ returns and in the communion and fellowship that we have with you now by the Spirit, through Jesus Christ, our mediator, our priest, and our king. We pray this all in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Amen. All right, well, I want to begin uh, the conference this evening by looking at a few verses from the opening chapters of the book of Genesis, Genesis chapters 1 through 3. The first three chapters of the Bible lay the foundation that Scripture builds upon as it traces the development of worship throughout the history of special revelation. And so this evening and tomorrow morning, I want to survey what Scripture teaches us about how the worship of God began and developed and advanced through various stages of history until it reached its climax with the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ at the end of the ages. And so let's start in Genesis. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1. That's a good place to start, Genesis 1, 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, heaven and earth here refer to two realms, the visible realm and the invisible realm. Heaven stands for the invisible realm, and the earth stands for the visible realm. The word heaven does not refer to the visible heaven, the sky that you can see that's created in verses 7 and 8, but it refers to the invisible heaven, the realm of God's glory, his throne room. It's the place where the seraphim, the cherubim, the archangels, and thousands and thousands and thousands of other angels worship the Lord without ceasing. Now, a couple of verses I think that uh, come to bear on that interpretation of Genesis 1-1 would be Nehemiah 9 and verse 6. Nehemiah 9-6 interprets heaven in Genesis 1-1 as the invisible heaven with its angels who worship God. And another verse is Colossians 1-16, where Paul says that all things were created by God in heaven and on earth, 
visible and invisible. So all things were created by God in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. So earth is the visible realm, it stands for the visible realm, and heaven for the invisible realm. Now there's another very important verse uh, to keep in mind when it comes to Genesis 1-1 and following, and specifically with regard to the worship of God, and that's Job 38 and verse 7. Job 38-7 tells us that when God laid the foundation of the earth, Job 38-4, the angels of heaven sang together and shouted for joy, Job 38-7. And so the invisible realm and all its hosts, the angels, the angels of heaven, were created before God made the earth. And when God performed the acts of creation in Genesis 1-3 and following, the angels of heaven watched him as he did it. They watched him lay the foundation of the earth, and they sang together, they shouted for joy, they praised him as they saw him create the earth. Now that teaches us something very important about the subject of worship, and it teaches us this. The first worshipers were not human beings. The first worshipers were the angels of heaven. The angels of God worship God without ceasing in his heavenly sanctuary. And there are several passages of scripture, I think, that bear that out. Isaiah chapter 6, for example, verses 1 through 7, Revelation chapters 4 and 5, and several other scriptures um, bring that out. Now, if you have any questions, let me just say, uh, feel free to raise your hand. I'd be glad to answer any questions as we go. We don't have to wait until the end of a lecture or anything like that. If I say something that you want me to clarify or if you're curious about and would like me to answer a question about, just raise your hand and I'll answer it. And also, if I'm going too fast and you'd like me to repeat a scripture, if I've mentioned a scripture or something like that, just raise your hand and ask. Okay, so the angels, this is what we're talking about. The angels who worship God in the invisible realm in heaven. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The heaven is the invisible realm with all its hosts. The angels and the earth is the visible realm. And the angels of God worshipped him in the beginning when he laid the foundation of the earth. So from the beginning, worship was meant to be a celebration of God's work of creation. From the beginning, worship was meant to be a celebration of God's work of creation. Just as we saw at the beginning of Psalm 24, we are celebrating God's work of creation. And Genesis 1-1 tells us that the cosmos, the universe, has two layers, if we can put it that way, are two levels. There's the upper level and the lower level. The upper register, as one person has put it, and the lower register. Or there's the heavenly realm and the earthly realm, the invisible realm and the visible realm. And that two-register cosmos is the setting of the entire narrative of Scripture in which we see frequent interaction between the upper and lower registers. That's what you see in the Bible, isn't it? There's frequent interaction between the invisible realm and the visible realm. And the lower register in Scripture, the lower level, the visible realm, is very often depicted as a replica of the upper register. The visible realm is a replica of the invisible realm. It bears resemblance to it. It's patterned after it. And the worship that God institutes on earth is patterned after his worship in heaven. And that's the point I'm trying to make here. 
In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, the angels first and the invisible realm first. The angels were the first worshipers. They worshiped God when he created the earth, when he laid the foundation of the earth. And the visible realm is patterned after that invisible realm. It is a copy of it, a replica of it. And the worship that God institutes in that lower register, that visible realm, is also patterned after the worship of God in heaven. Now, you might hear in this regard think, for example, of the earthly sanctuary that God instructed the Israelites to build at Mount Sinai. Uh, the sanctuary is called the tabernacle. This we will look at later, Exodus 25 through 40. That earthly sanctuary was built according to the pattern of the heavenly sanctuary. It was modeled after it. The heavenly sanctuary was the prototype and the earthly sanctuary was a replica, an imitation, a copy of it in the earthly realm. And the worship of God that took place in that earthly sanctuary in the tabernacle imitated the worship of God that took place in the heavenly temple, in the heavenly realm. So heavenly worship comes before earthly worship and it serves as the model or paradigm for it and it's also the goal of it, the end point of it, the telos of it, the consummative goal of earthly worship. Now maybe it would help to, to illustrate it. So in the beginning, God created, wow, that's a huge marker. <laughs> I don't think I've ever seen one quite that big. I have to write, hold it like this, like a, like a kid coloring or something. Yeah. Texas-sized markers here. Wow, it's difficult to draw with it. Ne maybe some finger paints. I can use it, use it next time. So you've got the, you have the lower level and the upper, and the upper level. And so this will be the upper register, of course, the upper register, the invisible realm, and the lower register. So this is uh, created first, this is second, this is a replica of this one. The angels of God are created first, they worship God first, and worship on earth is patterned after the worship of heaven, and it is destined to merge with it at the consummation. So this is the end point. Okay, so this is the consummation. I'll just write the end because I don't have room and I can't write <laughs> consummation with this big marker. That's the end goal, or the telos, which is the Greek word for end goal. That's the telos of human history. So heavenly worship comes before earthly worship. It serves as the model for it, the paradigm of it, and it's also the consummative goal of it, the end point of it, and it will merge at the end of history. Perhaps we can put it this way. Humanity's worship of God on earth is an imitation. It's a copy, a shadow. You recognize those biblical words, right? Hebrews, from the book of Hebrews. It's a copy and shadow of the angels' worship of God in heaven, and the two are destined to merge with each other at the end, at the consummation. So at the end of the world, the two registers become one. The boundary between heaven and earth disappears. The visible realm will be transformed this realm, the earthly realm, will be transformed. It will be heavenized. It will become one with the invisible realm. The veil that separates the two will be removed. Now, in theology, we refer to this final state of affairs, this consummate state of affairs, 
we refer to that as the eschaton. You ever heard of the word eschatology? What does eschatology mean? Yeah, the study of end times, right? It's the last things, the end times. So the eschaton is the state of affairs that will be at the end of the world, okay, at the consummation. So uh, that's the end point, the telos toward which we are moving. The worship of God on earth has both an upward orientation, so it's, it has an upward orientation, but it also has a future orientation. Okay, it has, it has an eschatological orientation. It's oriented toward this. It's oriented toward the eschaton, and it's, and it's going to reach that. It's going to reach that climactic point someday. So earthly worship is an imitation of heavenly worship, and it's moving toward it. It's moving toward that consummative telos when it will be completely heavenized, or we might say, if I can invent a word, eschatologized. Now closely related to that idea, very closely related to this idea, is Scripture's description of worship as an ascension into heaven. Scripture describes worship as an ascension into the heavenly realm. The worshiper ascends the holy mountain of God. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? Psalm 24. The worshiper moves in an upward direction, ascending God's holy mountain. And in Scripture, that language has a literal meaning referring to the ascension of a physical mountain, a real mountain. But that movement upwards, that movement up, up a physical mountain is also symbolic of the movement from the lower register to the upper register. Okay, it's symbolic of this movement, of moving to the upper register. It's symbolic of the heavenly orientation and movement of the worshiper as he approaches the presence of God on the summit of the Lord's holy mountain. Now, there are uh, two places in the Psalms where you will find the question, who shall ascend the mountain of the Lord? One of them is in Psalm 24, uh, which we read earlier, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, the mountain of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? which is at the summit of the Lord's mountain. The other place is Psalm 15, verse 1. So the summit of God's mountain is the place where his glory presence dwells. It's the holy place, or the most holy place. And worship is an ascension into God's presence in the holy of holies. It's ascending the mountain of the Lord in order to enter the house of the Lord, the place where his glory presence dwells. And so with that in mind, let's look at Genesis 1-2, which refers to the glory presence of God. So we've seen Genesis 1-1, where we get this upper register, lower register, um, two-register cosmology, right? The invisible realm and the visible realm. And then in Genesis 1-2, you see the glory presence of God. And where do you see that? Well, verse 2 says, The earth was without form and void. And darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. There it is. The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now, what is in view here is the fact that the acts of creation uh, that follow verse 2, 
verse 3, God creates something, and then so on. The acts of creation that follow verse 2 are ascribed here to the agency of the Spirit of God hovering over the face of the waters. They are ascribed to the agency of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is the agent who brings these who brings creation into existence. The creator spirit is the divine architect of the cosmos. Now, in the book of Exodus, and this is very interesting, and we will develop this when we get to worship under the law or worship during the time of Moses. In the book of Exodus, the agency of the Holy Spirit is mentioned again in connection with the building of the tabernacle. In Exodus 31, verse 3, in Exodus 35:31, Bezalel, who's in charge of the building project, is filled with, quote, the Spirit of God, the exact same phrase that occurs in Genesis 1-2. He is filled with the Spirit of God. So the Creator Spirit gives him, Bezalel, the ability and intelligence and knowledge and skill that he needed to construct the tabernacle. Now the point that the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, is emphasizing here is that the Spirit of God, the divine architect of the cosmos, is also the divine architect of the tabernacle. The Spirit is the agent who brings both into existence, and as we're going to see when we get to the book of Exodus, the tabernacle, the tabernacle that the Israelites built at Mount Sinai, is a miniature replica of the cosmos. It's a miniature uh, replica or copy of the cosmos. It's a redemptive recreation in symbolic form of the original cosmos. It's a microcosm of the Spirit's original creation. So the Spirit's original creation, Genesis 1, and then the Spirit's new creation, the redemptive recreation in symbolic form of the tabernacle in Exodus 25 through 40. So the tabernacle is a replica of, the, of earth as originally created, which in turn was a replica of that upper register, the invisible realm of heaven, God's celestial temple. Now another thing to point out here is that the verb that's used for the activity of the Spirit in Genesis 1-2, the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, that same verb is used elsewhere in the Pentateuch for the activity of the Shekinah glory. You've heard that word, right? The Shekinah glory, which is the cloud of glory, the glory cloud that guided the Israelites through the wilderness and then covered Mount Sinai and then later covered the tent of meeting and filled the tabernacle. So the point that we want to see here is that the Spirit of God in Genesis 1-2 is the exact same visible theophany which means revelation of God, a manifestation of God. It's the exact same manifestation of God that reappears in the book of Exodus, in the Exodus narrative, and guides the Israelites through the wilderness, uh, descends on Mount Sinai, covers the tabernacle, fills the tabernacle. So the spirit, of the, the spirit of God hovering over the face of the waters, what is that? It's the glory of the Lord. It's the Shekinah glory cloud the glory of God that covered the tent of meeting. That's hovering over the face of the waters in Genesis 1-2. Now the parallel between the Spirit's activity in the creation of the cosmos and the Spirit's activity in the construction of the tabernacle indicates that the earth itself, the earth itself as originally created, created by the Spirit of God was created to be 
a cosmic tabernacle, okay, a cosmic tabernacle, a cosmic house of God, a dwelling place for God by His Spirit. So, the earth is originally created by the Spirit of God as the lower level, the lower register replica of the upper register invisible temple of God, the heavenly temple. That's the point. So it's the lower register counterpart or replica of the upper register heavenly temple. And in scripture, the earth is referred to as God's uh, footstool. Heaven is his throne, the earth is his footstool. His throne is in heaven and the earth is his footstool. Look, for example, at Psalm 11, 4. In the book of Psalms, chapter 11, verse 4, Psalm 11, 4 says, The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. Okay, so heaven is his holy temple. So those two statements are parallel to each other. It's saying the same thing in the second part of it, but with different words. The Lord is in his holy temple, his dwelling place. His throne is in heaven. Isaiah 66 and verse 1. This is another important verse. So God's throne is in heaven, his holy temple. Isaiah 66, 1 says this. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Now, this is interesting. The tabernacle, in the tabernacle, in the temple, which is a microcosm of earth, the tabernacle itself, and later the temple, is also referred to as God's footstool. Turn to Psalm 132.7. When the Israelites traveled to the temple for their annual festivals to worship, they would say in the words of Psalm 132.7, Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. So God's dwelling place is the temple in Jerusalem which is referred to as his footstool. And God's footstool is more specifically identified in 1 Chronicles 28.2 with the golden slab that rested on the top of the Ark of the Covenant. Now, you remember the tabernacle had various pieces of furniture in it. And in the inner sanctuary, which is called the Most Holy Place or the Holy of Holies, there was only one article of furniture there, and that's the Ark of the Covenant. And on top of the Ark of the Covenant was a golden slab, usually called the mercy seat, with the two angels facing each other, their wings outstretched. That is specifically called God's footstool. The Lord is enthroned above the two cherubim on that golden slab, so the slab itself serves as his footstool. He is seated on his throne above the cherubim on this golden slab, which is his footstool. Psalm 99, verse 1. Isaiah 37, 16, 1 Samuel 4, 4, and so on. You'll see this in various places in Scripture. So the imagery of God sitting on his throne with his feet resting on a footstool. That's what you do when you put your feet on a footstool. You rest. You prop up your feet, you rest. And the imagery of God sitting on a throne with his feet resting on a footstool is intended to convey the idea of divine rest. God at rest. So whenever the glory cloud, the Spirit of God, the Shekinah glory, filled the tabernacle or temple, the idea was that God was resting on his holy throne with his feet on his footstool. Now look at Psalm 132, if you're still there. Psalm 132, verse 7. 
So when the Israelites would travel to Jerusalem to the temple for their annual, annual festivals, one of the things they would say to each other on the way, Psalm 132.7, is this. Let us go to God's dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Now look at verse 13. For the Lord has chosen Zion, that's the mountain on which the temple of God was built in Jerusalem. He has desired it for his dwelling place. Verse 14, God himself speaks, this is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. So the place of God's rest is his temple. His dwelling place is his resting place. His dwelling place is his resting place. And more specifically, it's his heavenly temple in the invisible realm, and it's also the visible replicas of that temple on earth. And the earth itself was the original cosmic vis visible replica of that heavenly temple. Now that takes us back to the creation account in Genesis. And what I want us to note here is that after God completes the creation of his visible cosmic temple, earth, he does what? He rests. He enters into his rest. He goes to his resting place. He sits on his throne in his heavenly dwelling and places his feet on his footstool, which is what? Earth. Heaven is my throne. Earth is my footstool. So heaven is my throne. Earth is my footstool. That's the two-register cosmology. Heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool. Now, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, Genesis 1.1. He created heaven as his throne and earth as his footstool. He created for himself a cosmic temple in which he might rest. And then he rested on his throne in the temple, placing his feet on his footstool. Now, look at Genesis chapter 2. This, I think, will help us to understand the meaning of Genesis chapter 2. Genesis 2, verses 1 and 2 record the climax of the creation week. The climax of the creation week is not the creation of man, Genesis 1, 26 and 27. That's not the climax of the creation week. The climax of the creation week occurs on the last day of the creation week, the seventh day, and it's when God rested. Now, that's very important, I think, to understand because if the climax were man, that would give us an anthropological or man-centered, that's what that means, a man-centered view of God's work of creation. But the climax is not man. The climax is what God does. Now, man is created to enter into fellowship with God, uh, and he does have fellowship with God on earth, and he's destined to have fellowship with God in heaven, communion with God in heaven. And that's what this climax is all about, Genesis 2, uh, verses 1 and 2, the Sabbath rest of God. So Genesis 2, verse 1, thus the heavens and the earth were finished. What's that? Upper, lower register. Not the visible heavens, the sky. It's the invisible heavens. The heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them. God finished the invisible and visible realms and all their hosts, which constitute his cosmic temple, his heavenly throne and his earthly footstool. Then verse 2, after creating his temple, he does what? He rest, rested in his dwelling place. He rested in his temple. On the seventh day, God finished his work, verse 2, that he had done. He finished constructing his cosmic house, his dwelling place, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. 
his dwelling place is his resting place. Psalm 132, 7 and 8, Psalm 132, 13 and 14. His dwelling place is his resting place. He finished his dwelling place and he rested in it, his cosmic temple, heaven and earth. So God rested in his dwelling place. He sat down on his throne in the highest heaven. Heaven is my throne. He placed his feet on earth as his footstool. Now that's what it means to say that God rested. That has always puzzled me ever since I was a little kid reading Genesis or probably more accurately being told about Genesis <laughs> from my Sunday school teachers or my parents um, and wondering, well, why did God need to rest? Uh, what's that all about? Was he tired after his hard week of work? Why did he need to rest? Well, rest doesn't mean that he was recovering from fatigue, obviously. It doesn't mean that. God doesn't get tired. Um, he neither slumbers nor sleeps. He never grows weary. Uh, he never needs to recover from fatigue. And it doesn't simply mean cessation of labor either, though it does come at the completion of a work. God finished his work of creation and he ceased from that activity. But God rested on the seventh day is God's, uh, God's Sabbath rest, is his royal session from his heavenly throne. Okay, he ascends his throne in the highest heavens and fills his glory temple in the heavens and places his feet on his footstool. And in his royal session, he reigns as the king of glory, filling his cosmic temple, the king of heaven and earth, invisible, invisible realms. So to say that God rested means that his glory presence filled his heavenly temple, rested on his throne. And on the seventh day, God rested. He made his heaven his throne, earth his footstool. Now the Sabbath rest of God in Genesis 2 then is a coronation scene. It's a coronation scene. Now, one author has written regarding this, um, and I'm going to, I want to read you a quote from uh, one of his books, which I think is very helpful. The author is Meredith Klein. Have you ever heard of Meredith Klein or M.G. Klein? You have. Well, good. Well, you would, <laughs> would have from Jeremy, I'm sure. Uh, Meredith Klein um, has written several books um, on various subjects. One is Images of the Spirit, which is a fascinating book to read. It's the kind of book, though, that you have to read every sentence about four or five times. And uh, Kingdom Prologue is the same way. And God, Heaven, and Armageddon is the same way. I, apparently, he, that's the way he writes every time he writes. But here's what Klein says about this. God's Sabbath resting. We're talking about what God did in Genesis 2-2. God's Sabbath resting is a royal session on the heavenly throne of his cosmic temple palace. That's what I've been saying, right? It celebrates the completion of creation and reveals that God the Alpha, the beginning, is also God the Omega. He's Alpha and Omega. This Sabbath reign knows no ending. Thus, the seventh day has no evening morning formula. It continues forever. Have you ever noticed that? When you're reading through Genesis 1 and then reading, reading the first part of Genesis 2, uh, you see that phrase repeated over and over again, and there was evening and there was morning the first day, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. But when you get to the seventh day, it doesn't repeat that. And the idea, of course, is that the seventh day is unending because God enters his rest, and that rest is eternal. It's unceasing. It gets with, it's without end. And God's Sabbath rest is the goal of creation. It's the omega point 
of the creation account. It's the climax of the creation account, but it's also the omega point of creation itself. It's where, it's where creation is moving. Okay, it's where we are headed. It's the eschaton. That's what God's Sabbath rest is. It's the eschaton. God enters his Sabbath rest on his heavenly throne, and that's the omega point of all creation. So the Sabbath has, the Sabbath is related to this. It's related to the eschaton. It has a, an eschatological meaning. Okay, it takes its meaning from the eschaton, the end time, the state of affairs that will be in, at the end. And it's the state of affairs, therefore, that we will experience at the end of the world. We will, we will enter into that consummative state of rest in that permanent place of rest, the heavenly dwelling place of God, the same rest that God entered when he finished his work that he had done in creation. So God's place of rest is his heavenly temple, his dwelling place, his resting place with the earth as his footstool. Now, understanding the nature of God's Sabbath will help us to understand the nature and destiny of man. Now, another writer who's a very helpful author in the study of Scripture and theology is Gerhardus Voss, and I highly commend his works uh, to you, especially the one from which I'm about to quote, which is entitled Biblical Theology. It's a biblical theology of the Old and New Testaments by Gerhardus Voss. Gerhardus Voss says, The Sabbath is an expression of the eschatological principle on which the life of humanity has been constructed. There is to be to the world process a finale as there was an overture, and these two belong inseparably together. So the Sabbath rest that God entered at the end of the creation is the aim of the consummation of creation. It's the end goal of history. The omega point of the creation week is the omega point of history. Now what we're going to see pretty soon is that what is descriptive of God in Genesis 1, uh, 2, verses 1 and 2 becomes prescriptive for man in Genesis 2, 3, where God institutes the weekly Sabbath as an ordinance to be observed by man. Now if you're still there in uh, the book of Genesis uh, chapter 2, look again at Genesis uh, 2, verse, uh, verse 2. So Genesis 2.2 describes something that God does. Genesis 2.3 prescribes something that man is to do. It prescribes something for man. So Genesis 2.2, And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. That's descriptive of God. Then verse 3, So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, he consecrated it, set it apart as a holy day, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Genesis 2-3 tells us that the ordinance of the weekly Sabbath, the weekly Sabbath day of rest, was an ordinance instituted by God at creation. It is a creation ordinance. The Sabbath was made for man. When? Genesis 2-3. It was made for man and given to man as an ordinance to be observed by him, but it also tells him something about his destiny, his future. So it is a sign, the Sabbath that God gave to him. Maybe we can uh, do it this way. So you've got Genesis uh, 1, 
I know, I'm sorry. Genesis, ooh, nice. I'm doing this wrong way, sorry. Genesis uh, 2, 2, this is God's eternal Sabbath, God's Sabbath. And then you have Genesis 2, 3, this is the weekly Sabbath. This is an ordinance given to man. This is the upper register Sabbath of God, his divine rest, and this is the lower register Sabbath of man, the earthly weekly ordinance of rest that is patterned after this one. So it has this orientation, right? It is a symbol of this, but it also is future-oriented. Why? Because it anticipates this. Okay, it anticipates the end of history when at the consummation we enter into that eternal Sabbath. So it is a sign, the weekly Sabbath is a sign that signifies something, a symbol of the eschaton. It's a symbol of this, the state of affairs that we experience in the eschaton. So man in his original state, in his beginning, or in his protological state, is oriented toward his final state in the eschaton. His protology prefigures and foreshadows his eschatology. And the ordinance of the weekly Sabbath instituted for man in the beginning is assigned to instruct him concerning his chief end, to glorify God and to fully enjoy him forever. That's the purpose of the weekly Sabbath. We'll come back to that in uh, just a minute, but let's look uh, first uh, at Genesis 1, 26 through 28. Let's back up a little bit in the Genesis narrative. I wanted to cover the Sabbath in Genesis 2, 2 and 3 before looking at the creation of man because the climax of the creation week is the Sabbath, the divine Sabbath, and that helps us to understand the nature and purpose and destiny of man. So Genesis uh, 1, verses 26 through 28 says, Genesis 1, 26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So Adam and Eve were made in God's image. Now what exactly does that mean? Well, an image is a reflection or a copy of an original. God is the divine original, and man is an earthly, created living replica or copy or reflection of God. He was created to bear and reflect the glory of God. And that image includes at least three things. He is created as a rational creature. He has reason, unlike the other animals. He has reason. He's a rational creature with moral agency. And he is also, number two, that's the first one, number two, he is created with moral excellency. He is righteous and holy. And he is created, or he is given a mandate 
which entailed the prospect of his glorification, his heavenization, which will happen in the eschaton. Is that me? Is that the feedback? Do you all hear that? Do I hear that every now and then? I don't know what I'm doing to cause it, but it's happening every now and then. Okay. Now, Meredith Klein again says this about the image of God. In this earthling man, made like unto the glory spirit with respect to the threefold glory of royal dominion, he's given dominion over the works of God's hands, moral excellence, and in eschatological prospect, visual luminosity, what he means by that is glorification, the prospect of glorification, Creaturely reproduction of the heavenly king of kings is perfect in this earthling made in the image of God. So man was created, we can put it this way, maybe more basically. A man was created, was a created earthly replica of the uncreated, divine, original. There it is again. It'll move us down a little further. I think it maybe was when I lean over like this. So maybe I shouldn't do that. Okay, so man was a created earthly replica of the uncreated divine original. He was an image of the original, an image of God. Now, in Reformed theology, we usually distinguish three aspects of the image of God. The first one, which we call the, the constitutional aspect of God's image. He's a rational, moral agent. That's the first one I mentioned. The second one is the ethical aspect of God's image. He has moral excellency. He's righteous and holy. And the third one is the functional aspect of image. He has royal dominion. He rules creation under God, of course, who's sovereign, king of all kings, but under him, he rules creation. And all three aspects of that divine image enable fellowship with God. They're preconditions for worship. That's the main thing I want to focus on because the subject is worship. God creates man in his image so that he can have fellowship and communion with him so that he would be a worshiper of God. Now, Lane Tipton said, and I know you know Lane Tipton. He's been here a few times uh, for the conference. Lane Tipton said regarding the first aspect of the image of God, that constitutional aspect, Tipton says, the constitutional aspect of the image of God pertains to the rational free agency of the image-bearing creature. Adam and Eve is created by God are rational free agents capable of communion with God. The rational free agency of man is a necessary condition for communion with God. So human reason and moral agency are given to man to enable fellowship with God, communion with God. They subserve the purpose of the worship of God. That's the point. Now, the, with regard to the second aspect, the ethical aspect, Lane Tipton says, the ethical aspect of the image of God pertains to the knowledge, righteousness, and holiness possessed by Adam as a creature who is created in communion with God. The communion bond with God is to be characterized by knowing God and loving fellowship. And the way that knowledge of God expresses itself is in righteousness, conformity to the revealed will of God, and holiness, total consecration to the service of God. So those three things which constitute the ethical aspect of the image, knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, subserve the purpose of worship, therefore the purpose of communion with God. And after the fall, of course, um, the ethical aspect of God's image is lost in the fall, and we have to be redemptively renewed in knowledge after the image of God, Colossians 3.10, 
and recreated after his likeness and true righteousness and holiness, Ephesians 4.24. So there are those three things, knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, Colossians 3.10, Ephesians 4.24. We have to be redemptively remade in the image of God in order to have fellowship and communion with him. Knowledge, righteousness, and holiness are preconditions for communion with God. So the image of God in both of those first two aspects enable communion with God. They enable worship. And the third one also does, the functional aspect of the image of God, and this will be the last thing I cover before we take a break. We'll take a break in just a second. So the third aspect of the image of God is the functional aspect, and that has to do with the commission or the mandate given to humanity, which we often call the cultural mandate. Sometimes it's called the dominion mandate because Genesis 1.28 says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over it. So God told Adam and Eve to have dominion over the earth. It's a dominion mandate. Now man was invested with royal dominion as a ruler under God over creation. God put man on earth to rule the earthly kingdom as God's vice regent, our governor. And the purpose of his ruling is to extend the kingdom of God from its center in the Garden of Eden to the ends of the earth. That's his mission. That's his mandate. That's his commission to extend the glory of God from its center in the Garden of Eden to the ends of the earth. He is to subdue and rule the earth and to bring it increasingly into the service of God with a view toward filling the earth with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Habakkuk 2.14. So paradise was not a retirement home for Adam. He had work to do, and his cultural mandate had a liturgical end. It served the purpose of worship. The work he was to perform would lead to a higher mode of fellowship and communion with God in the state of glory. So the goal of the mandate was to bring creation to its consummation. It was to bring creation to its end point. The purpose of his ruling over the earth was to gather all of creation into the worship of God in a consummate state of glory. That's consummation. Now, I have a quote here from another author named Michael Morales, who has written a book entitled, Who Shall Ascend the Hill of the Lord, or Who Shall Ascend the Mountain of the Lord, rather. It's a biblical theology of the book of Leviticus, and it's a very good book. I highly commend it to you. Morales says this regarding that functional aspect of image of God, which is the cultural mandate given to him. The primary blessing of being created in God's image is in order to have fellowship with the creator in a way that the other creatures cannot. Man has fellowship with God in a way other creatures don't have and can't have, other earthly creatures. The, the rule and subdue command, along with the be fruitful and fill the earth blessing, should be directed to this chief end and highest goal. Man is to gather all creation into the life-giving presence and praise of God. To gather all creation into the life-giving presence and praise of God. That's a beautiful way of putting it. And I would add to that. To gather all creation into the life-giving presence and praise of God in a state of glory, in a state of consummation. That was his original commission. That was man's mandate. That's the work given him to do. Do you want to take a break? I want to take a break. <laughs> Is that okay? Yes, sir. We, we have questions? Yes, sir. We have questions? So, you were talking about the need for the spirit of creation to come into the Bible. Is it Christ that has made himself created? Yes. 
Yes, yes. So, uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God, three persons, um, work together in the creation of the world, right? Their works are um, carried out as co-equal agents, and there's a functional identity, right? Not an ontological identity of persons, they're, they're distinct persons, but there's a functional identity in carrying out the work of creation. And uh, actually, we'll come back to that idea when we talk about um, Genesis 2-7 and the gift of life being given to Adam by the agency of the Spirit. And then Christ, being raised from the dead, becomes life-giving Spirit. So there's that functional identity in the gift of, gift of life. Other questions? Let's take a break. You want to take a break? Five minutes.